WUOG 90.5 FM presents Out There, a weekly journey into the world of the occult, conspiracy theory, the paranormal, and other bizarre undercurrents of the human psyche. The views expressed on this program do not reflect those of WUOG 90.5 FM, the University of Georgia, or the Board of Regents. It's Out There with your hosts, Raymond and Joe. Hey everyone out there, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Out There. My name is Raymond Wiley. My name is Joe McFall. Is it really? Yes. It's still yes. Joe McFall. Um, so, exciting show this week, Joe? Very exciting show. Um, we did an interview over the weekend. Uh, well, you'll hear it. We'll yeah, hear it. Yeah. We'll this get to it in a second. It may be our best interview yet. It was a lot of fun. It may be. Great not, guest, right. a lot of fun. Very interesting. And... Uh, so, yeah, we'll get to that here in just a minute. But, you know, as usual, we'll start the show off with a few announcements. So. Just a few. Yeah, Joe, uh, Joe, why don't you start it off? First of all, if you feel like sending us an email, the address is outthereradio at gmail.com. Send us an email. We'd like to hear from our listeners. Right. Or if you'd like to drop us a message during the show, you can send an instant message to Out There Radio. That's our AOL Instant Messenger screen name. I'm logging on as we speak. Yep. So yeah, if you feel like dropping us a message through instant message, it's out there radio and it's the AOL screen name. Right. So s- drop us a line and say hi. Right. And um, exciting announcement: we're going to have a website up in the next few weeks. So yeah. S- yeah. Stay tuned we for will, that. We will, of course, let you know as soon as possible when that's up, so you can go check it out. On there, we'll probably have a link. Well, of course, we'll have a link to our shows and just uh, some of the books that we've talked about and information and whatnot. So keep your eyes open for that. Exactly. And, um, you know, in the last couple of episodes we've mentioned, you know, that, you know, we, we would really like, like for our listeners to help us. If you really like the show, there are any numbers of ways you can help us out. You Ooh, I know one way, Raymond. What's one way? Uh, go to wherever, however you heard about the podcast or any podcast directory or through iTunes, write a review for the show, whether you like it or not. Right. Please, either way, yeah. either way. We just, I mean, it's good to, I think it's good to sort of get people's opinions, not only, you know, through email people who email us directly, but just to let other people know how you feel about the show as well. Yes, and we would really, really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, those are those are you know basic announcements. And it takes course, like thirty seconds, really. exactly, to write a review for the show. It takes about thirty. Sometimes seconds. you can just click to vote. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. But but enough of that. Enough of that. We've got some great shows coming up, and I guess I guess that's why maybe you should because you know there's so much good stuff coming up, and mm-hmm. it'd be good to share that with other people. So. Uh, our biggest announcement for this week, Joe, why don't, why don't you... Uh... Well, we are talking to the Reverend Ivan Stang from the Church of the Subgenius about coming on the show. So hopefully by next week, um, we will have a, an interview with Ivan Stang. So that's going to be really fun. So make sure you keep listening for that. Right. And also um, Mickey Z. Oh, yeah. We've been talking to some people at disinformation.com and they have... Uh, they sort of are sending us an author to talk to named Mickey Z, who I believe the name of the book is... Um, it's like oh, 50 American Revolutions You Never Heard About. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. That'll that'll probably be sometime in early to mid-March. Right, yeah. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Fascinating kickboxing instructor slash... Who, who lectures at MIT. Yeah, apparently. MIT lecturer. Yeah. And so that's going to be a lot of fun. And then also uh, William Cooper. We're going to be doing a William Cooper Behold a Pale Horse show. Coming yeah, up in the yeah, next yeah. Few weeks. I, I think I told a few listeners through email that we were going to do a William Cooper show this week or last week, and it never really, never really happened. But it will. So keep right, listening. Yeah, exactly. We will do a William Cooper. We've show. had all these. We've had all these guests pop up. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been having. We've just been having a lot of a lot of fun lately with uh, with with real, everything. Yeah. With live people, William Cooper. You know, he's not going anywhere. <laughs> Be nice. Okay, okay. Be nice. that's, a, that's an awful thing to say. Okay. I apologize. Anyway, um, also Rosalind Chapel, Templar Mysteries show. Oh yeah, yep. and uh, yeah, any number of other fun things coming up in the future. Ooh, ooh. Are you gonna talk about Kyle? Yeah, uh, one of our listeners, Kyle. Thanks very much, Kyle. Made us a poster in PDF format. If you want a copy of it, send us an email. We'll email it to you so you can print it out and hang it 
around your town. It's hot. It's yeah. That's I all love I the poster. Thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks yes, so much. Thank you very much. And so, yeah, I guess without further ado, we can. Um, I guess we'll introduce the interview here first. Um, yeah, yeah. So on Sunday we got we got the opportunity uh, to interview a man by the name of Robert Forty, and Robert uh, is. Well, we introduced him at the beginning of the interview, but he he is uh, interested in psychedelics and religion and politics and some just some very interesting things. We had right. a good conversation. Yeah, so so stay tuned. This conversation takes a lot of really interesting turns, and we yeah. we end up talking about things that just keep coming up on the show. Robert's a nice guy and a great guest. Too. Absolutely, yeah. very very articulate. So um, you're in for a real treat today. Absolutely. So I guess without further ado, um, Stephen, if you'll kick us over to the interview with uh, Robert Forte. Well, it's a pleasure today to have our guest, Robert Forty. Uh, how are you doing today, Robert? I'm doing fine, thank you. It's really great to have you. Robert, uh, is, you're a, more of a psychedelic scholar, I guess you'd say, right? Well, I like to say I'm, I'm more a, a kind of religious scholar yeah. with a particular interest in mysticism and, uh, and in psychedelic drugs mm -hmm. as, as uh, you know, such an important factor in the history of mysticism. This is going to be a great conversation. Robert studied history and psychology of religion at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. You've also taught at the University of California at Santa Cruz. That's right. And uh -huh. served on the direct board of directors of the Albert Hoffman Foundation. Mm -hmm. Albert Hoffman, of course, the Swiss chemist who discovered LSD, recently turned 100 years old, I believe. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. yeah we, we just came back from his um, a, a big birthday party and conference celebrating his life work. It was Awesome. This sounds great. You've also edited a few books, one of which is called Entheogens and the Future of Religion. The other, yeah. a book about the controversial 60s icon Timothy Leary, uh, called yes. Timothy Leary Outside Looking In. Yes. What we'd first like to talk to you today about, Robert, is the book Entheogens and the Future of Religion. Let's just talk about the terms we're going to be using first. What do, we, what do we mean when we say entheogens? Well, entheogen is a word that was devised in the... Um, around 1979, between 1979 and 1980, by a, a team of scholars, <clears throat> really led by a man named Gordon Wasson. Now, Wasson is a name you don't really hear very often in this, in this subject, because he, he liked to kind of stay in the background. And he was, he was the first white man to, to discover the mushroom and introduce it to the modern world. Mm -hmm. And then when the 60s happened, when Timothy got a hold of it, and the drugs became politicized. He was, he was rather disturbed by this, and so he came up with a new word to distinguish his perspective, that is, the ancient and religious use of these substances, mm -hmm. from the more popular, political, youthful, um, leery-ish kind of ways of using them. So it's, it's a word that comes from the Greek entheos, which means, which means God within. Ah, okay. Theo is a word you'll recognize from theology, for example. Mm -hmm. So entheogen means a, a substance, a plant or chemical substance that generates or awakens a sense of God within. Now this is a lot different, I, although when we talk about psychedelics, we're often talking about the same category of substances. This word has a lot different connotations, and it's maybe a, a more more accurate in terms of the, the use, historical use of these substances. Would you agree? I agree. I, I think the words, I honestly use them myself interchangeably. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, unlike Gordon Wasson, who I knew, um, I think that the 1960s psychedelic movement was, a, was an important and significant movement, not a trivial one, as he thought. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're, you're exactly right. The words are largely interchangeable. It just depends on the context that you use them in. This isn't necessarily a word, though, that you'd find uh, maybe people who, who have some sort of innate fear of these substances. You, necessarily w you wouldn't necessarily find them using this particular word to describe them. Maybe we'll get into uh, that a little bit later. But um, I find people use this word who, who kind of want to give the conversation a fresh start. Mm -hmm. You know, the word psychedelic has a lot of connotations and, and um, sets off a lot of red flags. And so entheogen gives us a chance to um, start the conversation all over again. What's interesting is that this fresh start is sort of harkens back to their use in ancient and classical cultures. That's right. Yeah. You know, you, you, 
you know, when I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago, which is a very, very you know, serious and intellectual place, the, the, the idea of Socrates, you know, taking psychedelics was, was a, you know, a, a stretch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, and that's, so, yeah. that's something a lot of people don't really know, is that maybe some, some of these substances were used in classical Western cultures in ancient Greece. Can you comment a little bit on that? Yes, I think this is an extremely important part of the field. And the third book that I edited is called The Road to Eleusis, which is a, a very important book that was written by Gordon Wasson and Albert Hofmann and Carl Ruck, mm-hmm. who is a classical scholar from Boston University. And they figured out and presented in a way that was convincing to most scholars that the ancient Greek Eleusinian mysteries considered one of the most important religious celebrations of all time, an initiation practice that went on for, was practiced in ancient Greece for 2,000 years, Hmm. was centered around the use of an entheogen derived from ergot, same as LSD. Mm -hmm. And so I consider this extremely important because although it is now well known that psychedelic drugs play an, an, an essential role in the shamanistic practices of, of uh, traditional societies. It is not so well known that they also play a very formative and fundamental role in, uh, in Western religions as well, beginning with the Greek, yes. Can you give us some further examples of uh, where this shows up in Western culture? Well, here now we're entering into an area that is, that is um, the scholarship is not as exact. But if you look at the myths of origin of the Judeo-Christian religion, that is the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will find, auspiciously, right in the very beginning, a story about two people in a mythical garden who are presented with a magic food. Mm -hmm. When they eat that magic food, they have a vision. They see things like the gods. They know good and evil. And, um, and this, is the, this is the story that really starts the whole thing off. It's the birth of humanity. It's, it's Genesis. Mm-hmm. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see a number of other rather auspicious references to the, the consumption or the drinking of a magic food. Moses goes up on the mountain in the rain and finds a burning bush that talks to him. Here's another example of, a, of a, a magic plant that imparts profound knowledge. Uh, the manna from heaven, a magic food that suddenly appears after the rain that Moses says is a divine food sent from God that will sustain you. That man does not live by bread alone, but that there is a spiritual food that is required as well. Further on in the, in the Bible now, entering into the... Um, Entering into the New Testament, you have, you have Jesus Christ, who was just another prophet until what happened? He went to the, the, the wedding at Cana, and he shared a special wine, a wine that was, that was much better than the usual wine that was served. And it, and it began his career as a, as a prophet and, helped, and, and was one of the reasons that people began to recognize him as Son of God. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find references to Jesus performing secret practices, secret initiations, where he would lead people through a a kind of death and rebirth sort of experience. And then right up until the very end, you have the Last Supper of Jesus, where he knows they're they're coming to get him because he's been a a, a pain in the neck to the authorities, and he knows he's going to go, so he has to tell his secret, and he says, here is the magic food, it's the body and blood, and do this in memory of me. So, you know, you probably know that the history of Christianity, unlike the history of, say, Indian religions, is particularly fraught with, with warfare and politicized editorializing of their text. But these, to me, and a number of other scholars, uh, are indications that there are sacred foods hidden within Western religions as well. So how, how did we lose this knowledge? And maybe 
If it wasn't lost, it was suppressed, and so why? Well, this is a very, very important question. And, um, you know, maybe we want to just flash forward for a minute and look at what happened in the 1960s when these drugs were suddenly um, loosed upon modern society. So this, this is a big question. What happened? Why, has, why did humanity lose this knowledge? In the 1960s, when these drugs were kind of rediscovered, there was at first a great deal of enthusiasm for them. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, the established authorities in religion and psychiatry became alarmed that these exper- the experiences that these substances caused were very, very difficult to explain mm-hmm. in the paradigms that govern these professions, medicine and religion, mm-hmm. number one. Number two is that it, it makes the authorities seem a little less relevant. You know, religion, orthodox religion, is a way to control people. Yeah. And the way it controls people is that the kings, the priests, have access to God. And if you want to know God, you have to obey their rules, you have to support the religious orthodoxy. What psychedelic drugs show you is that there's another way of going about this. It sort of puts it in your own hands, as it were. Yes. Yes. Now, I don't want to be glib about this, because at the same time, I believe, there is a great need for these substances to be very carefully controlled and used in in a very special context. You know, so they, they didn't, first of all, actually, they didn't completely disappear from Western society. They went underground. The ancient Greek mysteries of Eleusis fell when, when Greece fell to Rome. Mm-hmm. And the mysteries kind of went underground, and they survived in underground traditions and legends, such as, I believe, the legend of the Holy Grail, for example. And, it, and, and you know that um, as Roman Catholicism spread throughout Europe with the Inquisition eliminating any of the natural religions that existed in Europe before Christianity. All, all other religions had to go very far underground in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can find them, and there's, and there's more and more scholarship in this area digging up clues to the, to the continuation of these mysteries in Western practice. And would you say that's analogous to what happened with psychedelics in the 60s? Psychedelics in the 60s is, um, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated subject. Let's take a little time to take it apart. Yeah. You know, just yesterday I was on the phone with a, a man who was, uh, in, did a, a man named Larry Schiller who told me some stories that helped me see that the, the government's prohibition of psychedelic drugs. I used to go around saying that the government prohibited psychedelic drugs because they were, they were trying to thwart a rev- the revolutionary um, anti-war ecological uh, feminist movement that was born from these experiences. And, and to a great extent, that's true. But, you know, I'm a little bit older now, and I'm a, I'm a parent. I have a 17-year-old son. And I would be very concerned if my son went to college and started listening to a charismatic professor who started encouraging him to do something that was very bizarre to me. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want that to happen. So I think the prohibition against psychedelics in the 60s was at least twofold. It was one, a very natural and healthy protective mechanism when something so extraordinary is and on the other hand, it was just, um, you know, a kind of reactionary prohibition, a neophobia, if you will, uh, fear of the new. As far as the attitudes taken towards psychedelics within the psychedelic movement of the early 60s, and uh, we've discussed that Timothy Leary was a very controversial figure, and still is. And his attitude towards these substances was quite different from a lot of the other scholars around that time who were working with them. Yes. So <clears throat> this is one of the reasons that I did this, the book that I did on Tim. It's, it's a memorial volume. It's, it's, a, um, 
Its subtitle is um, Appreciations, Castigations, and Reminiscences. Now, when I first got involved in this field about 25 years ago, I wanted to go to graduate school and continue doing research uh, with psychedelic drugs in the area of the psychology of religion. Mm -hmm. These were substances that produced, under ideal circumstances, a mystical experience of a, a supernatural reality. Extremely important for, you know, just an understanding of the mind and consciousness. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and what I found from my first few teachers in this subject was that, you know, it was not really possible anymore to do that because the field had become so politicized, ruined by Timothy Leary, who had made such a, a party out of it. Mm -hmm. And he was such a charismatic and, and uh, brilliant, and, and, uh, but, but conflicted and, and flawed and, and very complicated guy. Um, and but, so I, I, at first, became kind of a leery basher myself. I was, I was along with this, these scholars who, you know, didn't like leery. And I, I tried for several more years to get research done in, in various ways at the University of Chicago and other places, and began to realize that the resistance to these drugs is so profound, number one. Number two, it existed long before Timothy Leary. Mm -hmm. And I began, to, I began to hang out with Tim a little bit and tried to get to know him and tried to ascertain for myself the relative merits of his, uh, of his way. And, you know, for Tim, it was a calculated risk. You have to remember now, Tim is coming out of a tradition of social scientists in the 1950s and 60s who were very concerned with what they saw as growing uh, fascism in the United States. Now, you guys are way too young to remember, but the 19... And I was, you know, just barely alive in the 1950s. Yeah. But this was, this was a period of um, time when, you know... There was, there was, like I said, a kind of creeping fascism. These are the days, if you know the experiments of, uh, of Solomon Ash. You know that name? I haven't heard of that, no. Solomon Ash did these very important studies in conformity and showed that, oh, that a majority okay. of people will defy their own senses, defy their own inner self in order to conform to a group. Or, or Stanley Milgram, another psychologist at Yale, who did these studies that, would, that showed that a majority of the people would administer painful, nearly fatal electric shocks right. to a fellow student if a man in a uniform told them to do it. So this is kind of the consciousness of the time, and this is, you know, World War II had just been over a few years, ten years or so, and they saw this kind of fascism creeping back into America. And there were a number of social scientists who were devoted to Finding out ways where they could they could they could enliven you know some vital core of the human being that wouldn't be so subjected to these kinds of pressures of conformity and authoritarianism and brutality that we had just seen you know in Europe. Mm -hmm. Tim was one of these guys, and and when Tim discovered psychedelic drugs, he realized that this was the thing. This is what awakened a truly spiritual consciousness. And this could ignite a, a social movement that, they, that was really, really necessary at the time. I forgot to mention this is also, you know, the atomic bomb. We, we now have a society that has this incredible destructive power to finding a way to awaken human consciousness, to, to excite a kind of correlative increase in wisdom and enlightenment and, and love and unity of humanity. And that's what they thought psychedelic drugs were. They tried to do it through the established um, ways in the university, and they were, they were kind of held back. And, and for Tim, it was a calculated risk. He said, well, let's just turn on the kids and, and let the chips fall where they may. And in, and in 20, 20 or 30 years, you know, these, these young people are going to be in positions of authority of their own, and they're going to have, this, have had this awakening. So it was a calculated risk. He knew people were going, he knew he was going to provoke the establishment. He knew that there were going to be casualties, but he also felt that, that the advance in consciousness was so important that he was willing to take that risk. Is there a sort of other side of the coin as, uh, within, within the psychedelics movement, sort of in contrast to Timothy Leary's style? Mostly I'm speaking of uh, 
of Huxley, who sort of took a different viewpoint on these substances. Yes. See, this is, this is a very important relationship to understand between Aldous Huxley and Timothy Leary. And what I said before, you know, Tim was a complicated guy. Tim was compulsively anti-authoritarian. And Huxley, was, Huxley became kind of a, a father figure to him. He was, he was, he was you know, uh, 20 or 30 years older, and, um, and you know, a brilliant, towering genius and literary figure, and became Tim's mentor. And Aldous knew, Aldous felt that, uh, that if the drugs were going to find their way into the culture, they needed to be creeped through the underground and through the establishment in religion and psychiatry and psychology. And Tim, like I said, kind of compulsively anti-authoritarian, rebelled against his teacher. And, and everything that, he, that Huxley told him, he did the other thing, like Huxley had said. And, and of all, above all else, Timothy, don't let the sexual cat out of the bag. You know, Timothy thought that, that psychedelic drugs had a you know, a, not only an effect on awakening consciousness, but an effect on enlivening the whole, um, you know, erotic, energetic, sexual aspects of the being. And, he, and he's absolutely right. And, and Aldous said, don't let that out of the bag. And Tim went and, you know, gave an interview to Playboy magazine and, you know, said this is, you know, that a woman can have a thousand orgasms, you know, during an LSD session. Making up this, making up all this stuff, by the way. See, Tim was, Tim was kind of a, such a complicated guy, because he was, he was so brilliant and so right on in so many ways, and yet he also embellished the, the, the true aspects of psychedelics with his own very over-the-top kind of Irish enthusiasm and made up all kinds of stuff just to make his point, including fudging data in certain important experiments that he performed. I did this book to try to, to try to show the, to, to try to kind of apologize for Tim and show the context that he was coming out of, but also to try to show him as a human being. And, and um, you know, it's kind of a, a mosaic of this complex personality. Do you think You've that, read the book. Does it, does it work for you? What do you think? Oh, certainly, certainly. There's some great interviews in there, notably um, Terrence McKenna, who is a brilliant philosopher, I think. Um, there's a great part in the interview where he talks, maybe we can get into this a little bit later, but he talks about... Um, LSD versus psilocybin, and how psilocybin is much more spiritual for him, whereas LSD is much more psychological. And what, what I find interesting is that many people, um, especially there's a, quite a, a few in, in uh, the Leary book, talk about how Leary himself wasn't very spiritual and didn't really, he, the spiritual aspect of LSD at least wasn't really big for him. Well, now remember, Tim. Tim was extremely mercurial. Tim, if you look at Tim's career, when he first got interested in psychedelic drugs, he first, he first tried to articulate their effects in a psychotherapeutic context. He was a Harvard you know, psychologist. He was, a, he was a psychologist at Harvard. He was, one of, he was one of the most outstanding psychologists in the country. In 1959, he wrote a book that was the book of the year, in psychology, the interpersonal diagnosis of personality. It started a whole tradition in, in psychotherapy and in personality diagnostics that, is, that still exists today. And so first he, first he applied psychedelic drugs within psychology. He, he spearheaded a movement, a, a research project, giving mushrooms and let me just, you know, insert this in here. We think about Timothy Leary doing LSD research. Mm -hmm. The fact is he never did LSD research. The research that he did while, a, while on the faculty at Harvard was all with mushroom. Mm -hmm. When actually not even with the mushroom, but with psilocybin, the chemical within the mushroom. Right. So it's a small point. But um, he first applied the mushroom experience to transforming convicts in prison some of the most hardened convicts in the Massachusetts State Prison became transformed by these experiences, and many of them never returned to prison. Mm -hmm. And, and they, had, they had profound religious awakening. And so Tim then shifted his focus from kind of psychological modeling of these states to religious modeling. 
and he he started something called the International Federation for Internal Freedom, and he and he worked very closely with with a number of religious scholars, uh, Houston Smith, prominent among them. Mm-hmm. You know, for for our listeners, I would urge everyone to read the um, recently published book called Cleansing the Doors of Perception by Houston Smith, who is one of the foremost religious scholars uh, in the world today. He's an he's a 84-year-old man and, and a very close friend and teacher of mine. Mm-hmm. And he worked very closely with Tim. He was a professor of philosophy at MIT at the time. And, uh, and Tim went to, uh, went to India for a year and spent uh, time there with gurus and practicing yoga and understanding the religious psychologies of Indian mysticism. And, um, and this, and so he, so, you know, he got this. <clears throat> and, you know, as Ramdas says in the interview that I did with him in that book, Tim, Tim uses metaphors the way a snail uses shells. Tim got into all the religious stuff, and then he found that people were, were becoming, you know, he didn't like it, so he had to kind of move on from that. And then he went into another, another, um, set of metaphors to try to, describe the experience. He went from psychology to religion to political activism, and that's where he really, you know, then, then he became, um, you know, arrested, and we can talk about that part of his life if you want. But. So th- these, these comments about, you know, him in the later part of his life are not reflective of his whole perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he liked to challenge people. If you said yes, he said no. If you said no, he said yes. It was just his just his manner, the way he was, is kind of a, a teacher and a trickster figure himself. Do you think, um, it's interesting, you had mentioned before about sort of the rising fascism during the McCarthy era. That's actually like a pretty common theme on our show. We talk about that a lot. We've, we talked about um, the CIA mind control experiments and with LSD, uh, MKUltra, and uh, scientists... Wilhelm Reich, who wrote, wrote about fascism and actually sexuality before uh, his books burned, were burned by the FDA. Do you think that, in some sense, Leary was right, that these substances, these substances instilled a rejection of that kind of, uh, of, of, that kind of system encroaching on our country? And maybe yes, more I do. Maybe I, I absolutely do. In fact, this, yeah. was, <clears throat> this was kind of the basis of the the presentation that I gave in Switzerland at Albert's um, at Albert's birthday conference, and it's kind of funny. When I was um, the first thing that I ever learned about LSD was in um, 1967, and it was on the cover of Life magazine. And I was only 11 years old in 1967, and I, I took the magazine into my fifth grade class, and I asked my teacher, "What does LSD stand for?" kind of smiled and she said let's save democracy (laughs) (laughs) and And it kind of flew right over my 11 year old head at the time of course but as i thought about this when i when i revisited the subject you know in my when i graduated from college i I started thinking about this and and um you know if you if you think about the political spectrum and on one end you have democracy and on the other end you have authoritarianism Mm -hmm or fascism, or totalitarianism. Yeah. And, and you look at this. Now, uh, on the, in a democratic society, you have a body politic where the power resides in the collection of individuals. And each of those individuals votes with respect to the whole. That they, that, that re- necessary for a democracy is that the individual understands that the, that the welfare of the whole is contained within them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at if you look at the history of mysticism, you find this expression in so many ways, like um, Tatvamasi from the Upanishads in Sanskrit, which means "Thou art that," or Jesus Christ saying, "The kingdom of God is within you." Mm-hmm. That sort of holy power that the individual contains is absolutely necessary for a democratic society to work. I believe. On the other side of the spectrum, where you have a where you have a fascist or a totalitarian society, it's the opposite. 
there the individuals are empty, or they feel that they're empty, and they project the power onto the state. You see that, that how these are opposite. And now what LSD can do, or mushrooms, or any of these sacraments, awaken a sense of the God within you, that you become your own authority. You don't need to project it out onto other people. And this is the kind of thing that you saw happening as the, as the 1950s transformed into the 60s. You know, you see this tremendous explosion of individuality and, and, uh, and color and, you know, and more self-determined people questioning authority, questioning the, the you know, the Vietnam War, the, the oppression of blacks, in, not mm-hmm. just in the South, but everywhere, uh, the liberation of the sexual instinct, mm-hmm. the, the freeing, the liberation of women. So yes, I think this is I think this is uh, profoundly true then, and I think it is profoundly true now, it's because we have uh, we are yeah. we are involved in a political crisis now that is um, far more significant, I believe, than what we were facing in the fifties and sixties. And that's that's part of why you know, I mentioned that fascism is a pretty common theme on our show. We we talk about uh, we often talk about the Cold War and sort of the encroaching fascism of the 50s as being very relevant to what's going on today. And one thing that, you know, that we'd like you maybe to comment on is um, what potential these substances have. I mean, given, obviously, they're illegal. Um, and, and we're not encouraging, of course, you know, anyone to go out and do anything illegal. But what kind of potential do these substances have to, to sort of uh, keep back the sort of encroaching fascism that many of us feel is going on right now? Well, Joe, you know, this is a question that I have been um, wondering myself very um, deeply over the past several months. You know, what am I going to do with this uh, body of knowledge that I have and, and my, my social and political conscience? And is there, is there a use for psychedelic drugs today to awaken individual consciousness so that we can see where we're headed and try to steer out of this. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, uh, let me just say, I, I don't know right now. I mean, the subject, the cat is out of the bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 60s and 50s, you know, psychedelic drugs were used on a, on a kind of tabula rasa. People didn't really have fixed ideas about them, and they had profound awakenings. Now they're kind of, they've almost become... Uh, commodified, mm-hmm. in the sense that um, I, I don't know if they've lost their power or not. I'd, I'd be very interested to study this in a systematic way, like looking at young people. I mean, could we, can we, can we notice, uh, you know, these kinds of awakenings in individuals today? Could you take, I mean, just to take an extreme example, could you take a, you know, a, a George Bush, someone who's been deluded by the propaganda of the Bush administration right. and give them uh, a sacrament in you know just the right context and does it awaken their minds? I don't know. What do you think? What do you see among among people that, that, that may be using entheogens in your community? Well, I mean, it, it seems like many of the people who who I know or have come across who, who have used or are using them uh, typically won't even... A- don't approach them even without some sort of without some sort of existing resistance to to the kinds of things that are going on in the country right now with the you know blind patriotism and encroaching fascism and that kind of stuff and in some sense that sort of resistance is is there a priori before the use of of entheogens it seems to me i agree with you joe and i think um i think for many of them they're already primed right you know, for this sort of kind of state of mind once they do them. But it seems to me, uh, Robert, that it's just not enough, you know? It's almost, it's uh, not enough for, for for the people who are already convinced of, of you know, that, that we need to change things, um, that we need to somehow convince more people. Yes. Now, it may, because we need to convince more people, it may be that psychedelic drugs are already so charged with the baggage from the previous uh, renaissance, mm-hmm. that they actually, uh, that they distract from the point. And I wonder about this, I mean, I'm right now um, 
very concerned about. I'm interested in in, in uh, the the 9/11 and what happened on September 11th in mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. and trying to help people really see what happened, not not to see it through the lens of the the quote um, official conspiracy theory, right? But to try to just you know step back and look at it as a crime and see who benefited from the crime. Look at the pictures. Look at the way the establishment handled it, and um, and try to shed some light on it. And I'm and I'm you know I'm known as a you know a psychedelic drug scholar, and that sort of puts me in one camp as a as a kind of a wacko. Mm. So um, so I don't know that that um, I don't I don't really know yet how this can work. Yeah, it may be that, that these are these are two different things. <clears throat> one way that it is clear, however, is if you look at the if you look at the U.S. Constitution and you look at the First Amendment and you look at our supposed uh, freedom of religion, right. and you look at psychedelic drugs and you look at their actual physical safety and you look at the whole you know literature, uh, uh, you can see that the official reaction to them is way out of proportion. Yeah. That here, that here is here is an supposedly inalienable right to religion is been taken from us, yeah. and that the ideals that make this country great have been sacrificed for a corporate materialistic fascist kind of mentality, and this should be considered extremely foul to patriotic Americans. Yeah, there's actually a case uh, on the Supreme Court docket uh, regarding the use of ayahuasca, religious uses of ayahuasca in this country yes well it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out you know i was i've i've been involved with a church that had a similar appeal to the religious use of psychedelic drugs in the 1970s this church was given over to me and and, um and leary actually you know when he was first busted for marijuana in 1966 he went all the way to the supreme court on this first first he tried to defend himself saying this is these are sacraments i'm a hindu and I want to use this as a sacrament. And they, they just shot him down. Now, the, the ayahuasca, the UDV church, has gone about it very carefully with great lawyers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, I'm gonna, they, they'll be ruling on this sometime soon. Um, if they grant this, the UDV the right to use ayahuasca, uh, and I know the judges are thinking about this, there's nothing to stop another church from saying they want to use ayahuasca. Or individuals for that matter, I would think. Or individuals for that matter, yeah. And so this is the, when they, when they shot Leary down, they said, you know, if we grant this, then it basically makes all our drug laws irrelevant. You know what I find interesting, Robert, is that we have one of the most conservative Supreme Courts that we've had in decades, uh, possibly ever, maybe. Yeah. But these are people who, in who are backed and supported by the religious right and at least ostensibly they support religious freedom and these are the people who might actually grant UDV the the um you know the ability to use these substances legally do you think that that's going to happen or no well <clears throat> this is another great conversation to have i mean see to my way of thinking um now, we, we have to look at this word religion. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? When you talk about the religious right, to me they're not really religious. Right. I mean, re- religion is a word that is supposed to mean to reconnect with something sacred. It's an individual process of um, rejoining the sacred. It's a verb. Religion is a verb. Mm. But, when you, but, but it's used mostly as a noun. And and when it's used as a noun, it sort of has the opposite. Instead of joining people, it separates them. You know, the religious right in this country are among the most uh, secular, in spite of all the religious symbolism and language, it's, um, it's, it's an extremely secular force, and, and um, absolutely flying in the face of the principles of, of its found of the of, of Christ, for example. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, and this is not a new thing, if you look at the, the spread of Catholicism throughout the world, it was it's one of the most destructive ideologies in the history of in, in history. You know, mm-hmm. killing 
millions and millions of people throughout Europe and ruining cultures, genocide in the, in the New World. Is, is that great? I like to make this joke that the great American theologian Woody Allen once said that if Jesus Christ were to come back here and see all the things that were done in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. So, so you know, when you ever have this conversation about religion, and you're like, George Bush, George Bush is not a religious person. I don't care how many, you know, what, you know, I don't care if he's walking around carrying the Bible and is visited by people like Jerry Falwell and so right. on, you know. This is not religion. Right. What about forgiveness, you know? I mean, well, this, this is, this, the, the kinds of behavior of these administrations really taxes our ability to, to forgive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're running out of time, Robert. Do you have any, maybe just a few more minutes, uh, last, last thing you want to talk about, anything? Well, God, I could go on for a while about all this. I um, I want to caution people. You know, I, I, for a long, long time, I didn't give interviews or public talks or interviews because <clears throat> because this is a subject that is very, very easy to misunderstand. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about psychedelic drugs in the context of a religious experience, you know, there's the danger of encouraging young people to go out and try them. Right. And this is a very, very grave responsibility that I'm not sure that I want to undertake. So I want to I also introduce a, a very sincere note of caution that psychedelic drugs are, are extremely powerful um, activators of, of very deep and mysterious and sometimes very, very frightening and disturbing aspects of the collective unconscious. And in my reporting on their link with the history of religion, I don't want to be encouraging young people to take them. I don't, for example, encourage my son to take them mm-hmm. or his friend. I think these are things that need to be treated with very, very um, deep caution and awe. And so anybody that's listening, you know, I, you really need to understand that. I, I'm, I have not been overall impressed with the use of psychedelic drugs by young people. I, I myself didn't take them until I read everything that was available on them. I was I was afraid of them, and uh, anybody that is going to take them, I would I would really encourage that sort of that sort of care. It's, um, well said. Well said. Yeah. I think it was Robert Anton Wilson who said that uh, psychedelics should not be used by anyone who's never taken them before, <laughs> or, or maybe he said by anyone under fifty. Something like that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Robert's a friend. You know, he lives right down the street here. Uh, uh, yeah. Is is he doing well, by the way? Well, I think he's um, he's dealing with his situation very gracefully. You know, he has a polio syndrome, and he's right. um, he's he's struggles sometimes. But you know, he's got an incredible wit and vitality about him, and yeah, yeah. So in in one way, he's doing great. And um, excellent. Yeah. Great. Well, Raymond, do you have any other questions? No, I think uh, I think that about sums it up. I think this conversation's gone gone really well. Thanks, thanks a lot, yeah, Robert, for um, it's giving us a, your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure too. Um, I look forward to hearing back from you guys if uh, if you ever need me to say anything else. Or yeah, for... we'd love to have you back sometime if you'd like to come on the show again. I'd be glad to. All great. right, great. Well, we'll keep in touch, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. You're listening to Out There with Raymond and Joe. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Out There. <laughs> yeah, we I didn't know we were back on the air so, so, so quick. But, I knew Raymond, but you didn't. So, yeah, he wanted you to mention it, Joe. So right. mention it. <laughs> <laughs> Over during the promos, I re- I remembered that um, the guest we just interviewed before the break, Robert Forty, had um, he had sent me an email asking me to just uh, announce there's a, to announce this lecture at University of West Georgia um, by um, sorry Ralph Metzner, who was actually uh, he worked with Leary at Harvard in the early '60s, and uh, he has a lecture. The title is Shamanism, Alchemy, and Yoga. Three Traditions of Consciousness, Consciousness Transformation and Their Significance for Our Time. And that is um, at the University of West Georgia in Carrollton, Georgia. So if you're down near in western Georgia or near Alabama or maybe 
South, even South Tennessee, you can make it down there on Friday, March 10th at 5.30. So, yeah, that's that. Excellent, excellent. So, um, yeah, we had a guy call in ask for a transcript of the show, interestingly enough. Yeah. No transcript, sir, but um, you can go and check out our podcast or um, yeah, download it, our episodes. If on you're the listening to this show for the first time live or maybe even uh, the live online broadcast, we, we podcast this show. So it's www.wg.org slash podcasts. Right, and so you can check out every show we've done since we started back in October of yeah. 05. So, um, any final thoughts, Joe, before we wrap this one up? I don't think so. I think that interview sort of stands for itself. It's That's some really interesting stuff. Right, and absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So all I have to really say is um, let's save democracy. Let's save democracy. Anyway, so I guess that'll about wrap it up for us here on Out There this week. Joe, uh, that was a cool interview. Hey, yeah, Raymond. A lot of fun, a lot of fun. Looking forward to uh, more Thank- in the future. So, Thanks again to Robert Forty. His books, uh, if you want to check them out, we, we actually found some at our university library, so you can probably find the same. If not, I'm sure you can get them at you know, your standard bookstore or right. online or you, whatever. You, you want to throw out those titles one more yeah, time? Yeah, uh, one is um, Entheogens and the Future of Religion, uh, edited by Robert Forty. And the other is Timothy Leary, Outside Looking In, also edited by Robert Forty. And he also edited a book that was written by Gordon Wasson that he had mentioned during the interview called The Road to Eleusis. Uh, so go check those books out. Robert is a very interesting guy, and his books are really good, too. So, All right. Well, that's going to do it for us this week on Out There. Uh, so you know, keep tuning in and drop us an email at outthereradio at gmail.com if you've got any feedback or comments or anything like that. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Out There, a presentation of WUOG 90.5 FM in Athens, Georgia. For more information or to subscribe to our podcast, visit www.wuog.org slash podcasts or email us at outthereradio at gmail.com.